Ladies and gentlemen, people of the internet, welcome back to yet another episode of Crypto Over Coffee. I hope you're doing well today. And if you're new here, every single Friday, I break down the latest news and the hottest topics in the world of technology and cryptocurrency whilst drinking a cup of delicious coffee. Now, in today's episode, we're talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin's price, Polkadot, Solana, Cosmos, and of course, our usual 404 Logic Not Found segment. But before we get into all of that, let's kick it off with questions from the community on YouTube and Twitter. So let me pull these up right now on the computer. And in the meantime, if you do want one of your questions answered in the future, please do comment them below or tweet me at Hishoshi4. And if you would be so inclined, please do subscribe to the channel and then hit the little bell notification button next to the subscribe button so you can get a heads up whenever I post new stuff here on the channel. So let's dive into these questions. Now, the first question is from Zolt Zabo. My question is, how do developers make money with DeFi dApps that they make? Is there an integrated fee that goes to the developer team? Usually these dApps or DeFi claim that they're free to use. So that's a great question. And I think a lot of times it depends. One of the things that people are starting to realize is that a lot of DeFi projects maybe are not 100% transparent about what the dev share is. And basically a dev share is tokens or coins that are set aside from the project for the developers. A lot of them are just free for all, right? So as this project or this coin starts to get very popular, it becomes worth a lot. And then of course the dev dumps basically the entire dev share on the market, right? It becomes sort of like a pump and dump scheme. In response, there are projects now that have uh, like dev share treasuries where they can only, they vest over a certain amount of time. So you can only collect a certain amount and sell a certain amount so that you don't have that simple issue where they're dumping on the market. There are also instances where dApps sort of have a, a fee payment system that feeds into a treasury, right? So as you use the dApp, there are small fees paid along the way for using the dApp that then go into a treasury that then pay developers. In other cases, it's all open source. They develop the thing. There are no fees. There's no dev share. And then it's all community contributions. But I would say that's getting more and more rare these days to see projects that are basically charity, if you will. So I would say when you're looking at a DeFi project or a DAP for that matter, always look first for what the dev share is for tokens and look to see if there is a transparent representation or a display of what those dev shares are and when the vesting is, if there's vesting, etc. There should be a very clear plan at least for how those tokens are used. So that being said, just something to think about when you're evaluating a project. So that's a great question. Thank you. The second question is, what exactly are rollups? Do they replace the need for sharding or is it another method for scaling? This is from Kevron Creates. Uh, this is a great question and I'm going to express this in a very simplified way. So if you know exactly how ZK or zero knowledge rollups work, don't get angry at me for not explaining all the details, but I want to keep this brief. In essence, rollups are this. When you have, let's say, a thousand transactions, right? You want to use a rollup to take those thousand transactions and roll them into one valid transaction and proof. So essentially in the context of say Ethereum, right? You would have a rollup mechanism built into the actual project, actual mainnet blockchain. And what that would do is essentially mean that you can take a lot of the load off of the main canonical chain and the other shards by allowing you to roll up transactions that come from layer twos, etc. And so basically how this is done mechanically is using zero knowledge proof technology. And that's why they're called ZK rollups. 
basically you can use a zero knowledge proof mechanism to prove or to show the validity of say those thousand transactions but only issue it in one transaction so you're rolling things together and you are removing the need for the network and those who operate it to have knowledge of all of the actual transactions individually that's the basic concept and this can be used with sharding which i think is what eth 2.0 is planning to do to make something that is infinitely more scalable than sharding alone or rollups alone so it's kind of two approaches that you can mix together at will but it is not that simple because the complexity is relatively large and i think recently uh, vitalik said that rollups are a challenging problem and sharding with rollups is a very very challenging problem so we shall see if this actually comes to fruition the way that they think it will but ultimately that's what it is so great question thank you kevron from uh doth derek i hope that's correct sorry for your butchering your name do you think Binance has anything to worry about when it comes to these new crackdowns? So I guess in reference to the CFTC coming after uh, BitMEX. I guess in retrospect, there could be an argument that Binance has done this in the past, right? But I think, and I am by no means a legal expert, I am by no means a regulatory expert, but I think that because Binance created the Binance US exchange platform for US people to use, they have instated KYC, mandatory KYC on both platforms, I think that they probably covered compliance. And I think that that was something that they were trying to do by creating Binance US. I don't know exactly whether or not there was an investigation or there will be an investigation or what's going to happen because I think it's all up in the air. But what I do know is that Binance, at least on paper on the surface level, not knowing what's going on behind the scenes or what has happened behind the scenes has made an effort to be compliant. So I have a feeling that that is probably enough, but it's really hard to say for sure. Uh, so for right now, I would be inclined to say that Binance doesn't have something really crazy to worry about, but who knows? Thank you for your question. Next question, Mr. Discrete 100, why is one Bitcoin worth more than one share of Amazon? This is a great question. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Bitcoin and valuation and the stock to flow model, which I don't like, by the way, a little bit later in the video. But one Bitcoin to me is worth more than Amazon for one reason alone. There are quite a few Amazon stocks out there, units of stock, right? Everything is about supply and demand. When you have the level of scarcity that Bitcoin has, regardless of what you think about the stock to flow model, the supply in general is fixed however of course you have selling pressure that can happen so there could be more bitcoin for sale at any given time because people just decide they want to sell there's bad news whatever right so the actual demand versus supply balance is not exactly um i guess fixed like people might make you think demand does not always go like this and supply does not always go like this for bitcoin but what i will say is that with Amazon, you have less value because of less scarcity and a much larger market, which means it's a lot less volatile. The contribution of Amazon or the valuation of a stock in my mind is a lot more indicative of financial statements, performance of the company, utility of the company, and a lot of other political factors that Bitcoin really doesn't have. So to compare a stock and Bitcoin is a little difficult in terms of valuation, but in the terms of the actual just raw asset, I would say that 
Amazon is far less volatile than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is more valuable because it's more scarce and the market is smaller, but that is also why Bitcoin is much more volatile than Amazon. And you could have multiple thousand dollar drops or gains in a matter of hours, days or minutes. So that's hopefully going to answer your question, but I know that it's really subjective. Some people don't value Bitcoin at all. Some people don't value Amazon as much as it is in terms of its stock. But what I will say is that is 100% subjective. And I couldn't tell you factually what's true and not true because it's an opinion. Thank you for your question. Now, the last question of the day is from TXN. Thanks for the video. Thank you for watching. What are your thoughts on NEO 3.0? Can NEO make a comeback? Okay, so originally when NEO came into the mix, I was a fan of the, the project. I was a fan of the plan, the roadmap. I feel that NEO, the team, took a lot of advantage of the, the great situation that there was, and I'm not saying take advantage in a bad way. They took full advantage of the fantastic time period in which they launched, right? There was this great period running up to the, the bull run, right? What I think happened, though, is that I think when everything crashed, projects like Icon, Neo, Ontology, etc., the, the bear market, quote unquote, really crushed a lot of these projects in terms of the momentum, in terms of the funding, in terms of the token price, in terms of the belief. And so it's been a really, really hard journey for these types of projects. But what I will say is that NEO has taken this approach where they said, OK, well, we're not doing well right now. Let's just go back to the drawing board and rebuild. So as you said, NEO 3.0, I think that the roadmap looks promising. I can't guarantee that it's going to work, but I do think that it is much too early for us to say there are projects short of projects that are just bona fide like scams, right? And I'm not saying a scam is equal to a project that doesn't work. Projects that would never have worked are scams. I think NEO could work. What I'm trying to say is yes, NEO can make a comeback. Yes, NEO has a chance to make a reasonable comeback in the market. They're going to have to deliver something that's compelling against some of the other networks that have now sort of stepped in and dominate the media space. And so that's going to be the big challenge. Not just can you build something good, but can you get developers on board? Can you get the media on board? Can you get the community back on board and build up from there? That's going to be critical. So we shall see. I think the doors are open for any project that comes in with a good idea to still grab market share and make an impact. So those are my thoughts. Let's dive into the news now. Now, for those who are new here, Every week in partnership with Kobo, the folks who make the awesome Kobo Vault hardware wallet, I'm going to be giving away the Kobo Tablet Steel Phrase backup device in every episode from here on out. And all you have to do to enter the random draw is just to comment on this video down below and I'll pick a random winner each week. And for transparency, the product is only available in the US, Canada and EU. So if you win and you're from another region, I'll just send you some Bitcoin instead. So the winner of last week's giveaway is here on the screen. You'll see the random draw happening. And now that that is out of the way, let's dive into the first news story or the first news of the day. And as you would expect, let's just kick it off with a little bit of Bitcoin analysis to get this Friday celebration going. Now, this week was, again, fairly stable for Bitcoin. I think it was a pretty good week overall. And throughout, prices were pretty much hanging right in around the 10,500 mark for a lot of the week. However, then I guess towards the end of the week, bolstered by some really positive news and less sell-off volume or less sell-off pressure, Bitcoin climbed above 11K again, sending crypto Twitter into a bullish frenzy. Now, here we sit today on Friday and the crypto markets are largely green, which is obviously a great thing to wake up to. 
and it seems to be driven by Bitcoin's resurgence overall market-wide. Now, there are a few reasons why Bitcoin likely made this nice jump. First of all, news about Square's Cash App adding almost 5,000 Bitcoin to their balance sheet with this quote and support from CEO Jack Dorsey. Square believes that cryptocurrency is an instrument of economic empowerment and provides a way for the world to participate in a global monetary system, which aligns with the company's purpose. So essentially a glowing recommendation and endorsement from the CEO of Square. Secondly, I do think the market cooled off after the chain of bad events, pun intended, that happened related to the KuCoin hack, the BitMEX enforcement action, and more, which as I said last week, I'm impressed, immensely impressed, that Bitcoin and other crypto did not drop below 10k or see these crazy 10 to 20% drops like they have in the past in response to these major events. That in and of itself is a more bullish indicator to me than any of the other ones out there. And I do also think that the weaker US dollar and other fiat currencies weakening do also contribute to Bitcoin price gains as well, albeit less so than other things. There is one thing though that I think is not a valid bullish indicator in my book, and that is the stock to flow model. Lots of people like to tout the stock to flow model as the golden de facto standard that promises insane Bitcoin prices in a matter of months or years. Now, my opinion is that it's kind of a garbage indicator in my book. First of all, the supply component of the model is not totally accurate. You know, while Bitcoin supply is in fact fixed, the total supply or the adjustment that you need to make for lost Bitcoins are really not there. So Bitcoins that you don't have access to or never will. And it doesn't acknowledge the fact that the for sale supply of Bitcoin can be much larger than just the net new Bitcoin that's mined on blocks. Now, on the other end, it means that demand is far more important in this equation than the supply is. And it is by no means a steady curve of demand always growing or even staying stable towards the moon. And so ultimately that means the stock to flow model doesn't make that much sense as a true indicator of price. If the demand is not there, the sell pressure is presenting more available Bitcoin than the demand is growing, then the stock to flow model falls apart. And I understand that it's cool to look at. And if you have Bitcoin, you probably want it to be true. But to be honest, I don't think it should be the holy grail of analysis. So you tell me, what do you think down below in the comments? Now, in other news, the popular interoperability network Cosmos has just announced a massive bug bounty program ahead of a monumental code release to the network dubbed Stargate. Now this is a particularly huge result. Now this is a particular huge release because it's the fully functioning implementation of the IBC or Interblockchain Communication Protocol that is the crux of the wide interoperability that Cosmos has promised in all their white papers. Now needless to say, this is not only the most impactful and important release that Cosmos has ever made, it is also the final push needed to complete the original specification from the Cosmos white papers and roadmap that was created years ago. A successful deployment is, of course, critical to the success of the project and will set the tone for the next roadmap worth of improvements and upgrades to the network that will come in the future. Now, this bug bounty program is intended to find any critical or even non-critical bugs or issues in the Stargate release before it launches, which is a fantastic move, so bravo Cosmos for doing this. And the bug bounty will run for around three months, basically the balance of 2020, and will come with rewards anywhere from 200 bucks to 5,000 bucks for low to critical severity bugs and issues respectively. So there's a good incentive for open source devs and security researchers to begin taking a deep dive into the code base to find these issues and report them. Of course, the critical issues found in the Tendermint consensus code last year by Cosmos 
and Bluezell researchers are something that played into this decision, I would say, to do a long-term lucrative bug bounty program. So hopefully this will prevent bugs from making it into the mainnet release, and they'll be found in this bounty program period if there are any critical ones. Now, I for one have been waiting feverishly for this Stargate launch, and because I think Cosmos's Ethermint network is going to take significant chunks of the in-development DeFi projects that simply cannot afford to use the Ethereum proof-of-work mainnet, this IBC release with Stargate is critically, critically important, and it'll make that Ethermint reality more prevalent. And so we shall see what happens, but I'm very excited about this. Now, back in the world of Bitcoin for just a second, yet another Lightning Network vulnerability was just found, which prompted Lightning Labs to send out a tweet encouraging the community to upgrade to the latest version with a patch. Now, for those unfamiliar with Lightning or the Lightning Network, it's basically a layer two transaction network or a network that sits on top of Bitcoin where you can transact in a sort of channel at will and then reconcile your many transactions in that channel into one single transaction on the bitcoin mainnet now this is of course highly simplified but indicative of the idea behind the lightning network basically you take your mundane daily transaction volume and you do it securely off chain and then you reconcile it for finality on the mainnet bitcoin network or the main canonical chain in one or two transactions now this helps lighten the load or the burden on the main chain but my issue here is that not only is lightning not getting the adoption that the community thought it would there have been serious concerns over security and privacy and there have been multiple times where vulnerabilities have been discovered news cycles run about it or folks raise privacy concerns about lightning network and i understand that this is under development and it's not a finished product but i'm wondering if it's now at the point where after this many months or years building if it's time for the different implementations of lightning to get majorly overhauled or re-architected i just I, I don't know that this is the answer to the scalability issues that we see in bitcoin at least i don't see a path right now towards a truly robust and functional solution in the lightning network portfolio of solutions so again we shall see what happens with it but i'm not convinced yet now it is time for 404 logic not found and for those who are as of yet uninitiated in this little firecracker of a segment i highlight notable tech related fails or otherwise stupid moves in the world that need to get some attention and speaking of attention if you want to get this video some more attention from the youtube algorithm please do hit that like button and get subscribed because it does tell the youtube robots that you're liking what you're seeing you want to see more of it and other people should check it out so thank you in advance for that now today's lack of logic is sponsored by eos who recently promoted an announcement that google cloud one of the larger uh, cloud infrastructure providers out there is beginning to take steps to become a block producer in the EOS network. Let that sink in. And by the way, EOS is not an actual sponsor. That was a joke. What I genuinely do not get here is that after admitting that the governance in EOS is pretty much broken, why in the world would they be excited that one of the biggest and powerful centralized organizations on earth is trying to gain responsibility for block making in their supposedly decentralized network? The common response from EOS apologists here would be, oh, well, there are 21 block producers and voting happens constantly. So you always know that the EOS holders voices are being heard and that the best block producers win. The problem with this 
is that it's not really actually indicative of how the power dynamic in EOS has actually played out in the past. To be a block producer in EOS, you must utilize or contribute compute resources, likely in the cloud, which now Google Cloud has themselves a distinct advantage in because they own countless data centers and tons of compute resources, virtually unlimited compute resources. And secondly, rather than just staking tokens, a block producer's stake in the network comes in the form of infrastructure slash compute resources, development efforts, and community building efforts. Yet again, Google Cloud has an advantage here in delivering this to get votes from EOS holders. A small individual producer or like a group of three cannot possibly compete in network metrics against someone like Google with all of those resources, all of the community that they already have. It's just not possible. And it means that yet again, small producers have basically no chance. Now EOS was built to be a decentralized network, but the mechanics of the network itself are incenting centralization to happen in my opinion. And here EOS is celebrating Google Cloud becoming a block producer. I mean, EOS has so much going for it under the hoods. There's a lot of good stuff in there, but the governance is broken. It's a sad affair that needs to be fixed. And I genuinely don't understand what the strategy is here. So 404 logic not found, cue the hate from all the EOS lovers out there. Now recently, Solana, the scalable blockchain that has started making waves in the last year or so after becoming home to the FTX built Serum decentralized exchange, they just announced a fully functional Ethereum bridge that should allow direct conversion of ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum to the SPL fungible token standard on the Solana network. Now this direct bridge should open up the door for a plethora of cross-platform DeFi projects and potentially an easy swap for Ethereum projects over to Solana that are looking for a way to get away from excessive fees. Now. This bridge is currently in beta right now. I would say even more so maybe alpha, and it's being audited by a Swiss firm at the moment for security. And it'll likely be launched before year's end if I had to venture a guess, since it will be unofficially used in beta during a hackathon at the end of October, according to reports from Solana. This could be something pretty notable to follow, and I think DeFi could really benefit from more networks like this bridging from Ethereum. So make sure to keep your eyes out for the launch of the Solana Ethereum bridge. Now, I did also want to talk about the ever-popular Polkadot network, which outlined plans for a somewhat new way to get funding for projects that are aiming to get a slot as a parachain in the interoperability network that is Polkadot. Now, in order to become one of those parachains or independent blockchains that participate in the Polkadot network at large, a project must bond or pretty much stake, lock up, dot tokens, which is basically fronting capital to earn that slot. You're leasing a slot in the Polkadot network. And these slots will be limited in the first phase of Polkadot and long-term will be limited to some 100 parachains that can be a part of Polkadot at large. Now the requirements for bonded or staked DOT will likely increase based on supply and demand as these slots are in higher demand. Now that being said, the idea of an IPO or an initial parachain offering will give new participants or projects the ability to bootstrap the dot bond required for a slot lease in the network from the Polkadot community itself who hold dot. Essentially, this means that you can crowdfund a loan that will be held in escrow to your project to get a slot or a lease for a slot in the Polkadot network. Then at the end of the lease period, the dot is returned to those who lent it to bootstrap the project. This means there is less room for misappropriation of funds like traditional ICOs where the project team basically just got 
cash basically and then could do whatever they want with no transparency so this is a great idea it does protect both sides but i think there will have to be a reward component involved or creative ways to incent folks to participate because dot is likely to be a hot commodity and may not be something that people want to lock up for a long period without recompense for a potential loss in value while the tokens are locked in and accessible so again very cool to see i love these new funding models i think we need ways for equitable and fair raises for young projects that are also consumer friendly and give benefits to both sides so highly encouraged very stoked about this and then next let's talk about the biggest winner and loser of the week again if you like this new segment please do let me know in the comments the biggest winner of the week has to be those who bought the last major crash in early october uh, in the crypto market and are now reaping the rewards of these big green days hopefully you are taking profits again not financial advice but profit taking is smart well done the biggest loser of the week though is probably coinbase who have lost five percent of their staff equivalent to around 60 people due to the foolish apolitical policy letter and severance offer that ceo brian armstrong sent out to employees yikes that's pretty hefty if you want to hear more about this i did a whole spot on last week's crypto over coffee about this move and what it means now as always folks if you have time to stick around please do check out my top three vpn picks video to learn about the best services to protect your internet traffic with a layer of encrypted goodness but regardless of that thanks so much for watching today and i wish you and your family a wonderful weekend and week ahead until next time cheers